0: Welcome to The Gathering Pod, the audio version of my weekly Gathering Room broadcast. I'm Martha Beck. And today we are going to talk about, I'm gonna jump right in. Um, I'm gonna talk about how to shape the world instead of letting it shape you. I actually say the world, how to shape the world. That is a brash claim. But I think every one of us has an impact on the world. We create the shape of, of the world in little tiny ways. Some people have vast influence, some people have small influence, but the world is always different because someone lived in it, no matter how small you may feel. Now, most of us allow the world to shape us without question. We're sort of born into uh, a fully running machine that kind of sucks us up and tells us what to be, and then we become that. And this week I've been thinking a lot about it because I've been reading this book by my friend, Elizabeth Lesser, who is one of the founders of the Omega Institute. I don't know if any of you ever went to the Omega Institute. Um, it's a place in in upstate New York where they have um, retreats and so on. And it's really, it's really, really cool. And I've been lucky enough to present there several times. I'm going to hold this one up again because it's a really, really, really good book. And it's about adding the female side of the narrative of humanity to the history so that it becomes, you know, in, in feminist circles, they say there's his story and then there's her story. I prefer our story. And that's what Elizabeth writes about too. So it's not, um it's about balancing the world. It's not about men versus women or gender or anything like that. It's just that one type of, social pressure has been creating what we all aspire to for hundreds of years, and it's not working that well. So you probably know that Cassandra was a figure in Greek mythology who had the ability to tell the future, but a curse that she would be able to see the future and talk about it, but no one would ever believe her. So I know a lot of you have talked about uh, different types of struggles and trauma that you've experienced in your lifetimes. And one of the most hellacious things you can go through is simply having an experience and then not being believed when you talk about it, not being listened to. When I train coaches, it's always about, you know, listen more than you talk. People need to be listened to because it's in being listened to that we evoke the stories we need to tell and that's who we really are. Well, Cassandra never got listened to. And so what Elizabeth Lesser is saying in this book is, Cassandra right now is speaking through the voices of many people of all genders and saying, things will not go well if we don't change what we do. And nobody's listening. Nobody seems to be listening all that hard. I think some people are. I think the good is rising along with the obviously not good, but not good makes a lot more noise than good. (laughs) So we're getting a lot more, impression of the world going crazy than the world going more sane. Now, the part of this book that really got to me most is um, there's a chapter where she talks about um, uh, these statues in Central Park. She goes walking through Central Park and she sees statues that she's, walk- she's walked past them her whole life, every time she was in the city. But this time she walks through thinking, to what does our culture pay attention? And she quotes, um, someone is saying, show me to what you pay attention and I will tell you who you are. It's Jose Ortega y Gasset who said that. Don't know quite who he was, but it's a good thing. Show me to what you pay attention and I will show you what you are. So she talks about seeing a a statue of General William Sherman, who he's on a horse and he's got an angel and he's all complete everything. The horse, the angel, the Sherman, they're all plated in gold. And it's a gorgeous work of art that you can't take your eyes off. And Elizabeth Lesser says, what did he do for this? Well, he led the Union army in crushing the Confederacy. He did the, the, he did the, burning path to the sea. He burned Atlanta to the ground, so yay. Like in Gone with the Wind. Oh, and then after the Civil War, he was responsible for what in indigenous American circles is is called the Trail of Tears. He was very largely responsible for uprooting the indigenous people who had lived on the land, killing a lot of them, displacing the rest, and making sure that the remainder died of disease. So this was his big thing for which he gets plated with gold and we all stare at him every time we go to the biggest city in the, the greatest, some say city in the world. And she was like, hmm, she talked about a woman, a teacher who was in, I think it was an elementary school, could have been a middle school, uh, when an armed teenager came in ready to shoot up the school, you know, like you do these days in America. And this one teacher stopped him and he had like an automatic military rifle. And she said, wait, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing? And she got him to stop and she talked to him and she said, the world needs who you are. The world doesn't need another dead body with a lot of dead children around it. Tell me who you are. And she listened to him and she prevented another horrific school shooting. And she was like, who's going to put a statue of her in Central Park? To what are we paying attention? Because that is who we are. So I thought, yes, these are really, really cogent words for us as a society, but what about us as individuals? And you know, I always turn everything into self-help. And by the way, as I talk through this next bit, if you have any kinds of little questions in your head, type them in right away so that our gracious Badger, who is behind the scenes, um, can grab them and send them to me and I can answer them in the last part of the gathering room. So, um, personally, you are the sum total of the things to which you pay attention. That's what Gasset is saying, Ortega Gasset is saying. And that's what Elizabeth Lesser is saying. And that's what a lot of um, Asian, Philosophers have said that attention is the primary, it's like the primary real estate of the human brain. There are all these things going on at every different level. Part of our brain is helping us breathe, helping our hearts beat. Part of it is controlling the fight or flight reflex. Part of it is thinking about a song we heard on TV or whatever. But to what we pay attention gets a lot more real estate in our brains. There was I remember reading once in this Japanese book, um, a a student asks a Zen master, tell me the secret of life. And the Zen master just says, attention, attention, attention. And I remember thinking, what? (laughs) And what I think the Zen master was saying is, once you start to watch your own mind, you see the places where you've put up statues to various people in your life. And most of us put up statues to the people who burned us to the ground, um, uprooted us from our happy homes, took everything that was good for us and left us sick and homeless, like whatever you know, metaphor for that we have in our own life, we pay a huge amount of attention to the people who've done violence, not physical violence necessarily, but that emotional violence. If we shifted, because we're being trained as a culture to look only at the, the people who caused destruction, Those are the folks, and she goes, Elizabeth Lesser goes through the whole world and sees what people put up monuments to, and it's always the folks who killed the most people. That's where we put our attention. So she says, okay, let's look at the life-enhancing people in our culture, and you can do it individually by looking at the life-enhancing people in your past, okay? Your own, our story. Not history, not her story, but our story. So to give, an unbiased account of your life is to put as much attention on the goodness you've received as the badness. Now, here is something that I may have said before, but the research is so amazing and so solid on this that I'm going to say it again, probably more than once. And that is that the single, when when they started looking, Martin Seligman became president of the American Psychological Association. And for the first time in the 90s, he started saying to people, instead of looking at mental illness, let's look at what makes people happy. Let's make that the focus of our attention, right? For the first time, psychologists were told, take your attention off mental illness and put it on what makes people happy. They've never done that before because our culture preferentially gives attention to the negative or at least the destructive. Anyway, so, They started looking at what made people happy. And here is the one thing that they found is the most happiness enhancing single thing you can do. That is to sit down with a piece of paper, go through your life and remember the people who have given you positive things. And it could be something that was really small, but it changed the course of your life. It could be a teacher. It could be a parent or grandparent. It could be a friend, but somebody who changed the course of your life for the better. So you sit down with that and you write a letter to that person saying exactly what they did. And by doing that, you keep your attention on them and on their goodness. Then if you can, you either send the letter to them or for maximum happiness, you find them. You either call them or go see them. Well, with COVID, you probably call them, but you could Zoom them or Skype them or whatever, FaceTime. And you read the letter out loud to them. Now, people who did this had measurably happier lives for a year afterward compared to people who'd written like letters that were just random or, you know, not particularly emotional, just a letter to someone they loved. So this time, they called it a gratitude letter. Focusing on that person means that your attention is on the good that they did you. Writing it down means that your attention is focused and a different area of the brain. Your cognition is coming in, your verbal stuff. You're writing it all down. Now, when you contact them and read it to them, you are activating the social aspects of the brain. And let me tell you, that's what determines most of what you are. Last week we talked about, we're all thinking about what other people are thinking about us. We're pre-programmed to care a lot about social interaction. So when you actually read that letter to another person, it blows out the circuits on your brain and it makes so much attention go to that relationship and the joy and the love and the whatever it was you got from the relationship, that it permanently shifts your brain in the direction of happiness, or at least measurably for a year out. So this is one thing I'd like to challenge you to do this week. Put your attention, take your attention off the places where people have burned you to the ground and displaced you and made you sick. It's there, we're not going to deny it. You need to be heard, but you need to shift your attention. We all need to shift our attention to the ones who blessed us. And it's Thanksgiving week. It's the perfect time to do a gratitude letter, you guys. And if you can do one, you can do more than one. Imagine if you did that, every couple of weeks or every other day for a while or whatever. If one letter can make you happier for a year, imagine how much happier dozens of letters could make you. And it doesn't have to be about something big. It could be about something small. It just has to have influenced you. So this Thanksgiving week, let's not let the world shape us with its pressures. Let's shape our vision of the world by choosing to pay attention and build monuments to the things that have made us happy, to the things that have made us wise, to the things that have made us loving. So that's my recommendation for Thanksgiving week. And now I will happily take any um, questions, except I don't have Rose there. There we go. Hello, the lovely peoples. Purpose, and you will be able to watch it without any charge at all. I have her on another computer. That's how advanced we are. Okay, so Nancy Horner says, I'm gonna have to get my glasses on for this. Sorry, all these technical difficulties. We will not build a monument to them. If we stop paying attention to people in situations that we have learned to fear, can we trust our ability to use previous knowledge to identify new danger? Yes, that is what's so fancy about the brain. You've all heard the phrase triggered, like, oh, that really triggered me. It's It's a nasty experience to have our trauma triggered. But the reason we use that word is that the brain is so constructed that if something damages us and we later see anything that even remotely resembles it, all the fight or flight signals switch on, like boom! And then we can evaluate, too often we go off, we assume that we're back in the terror, but what it really is good for is evaluating, is this really like um, the situation that traumatized me? For example, I had a client once who had an alcoholic parent, and the sound of people putting ice in a glass was horrendously triggering for her, and she'd had, a lot of bad experiences like in restaurants (laughs) because she'd get so triggered. And what it was really doing was saying, okay, bring it to your attention. And we worked out in the coaching how to differentiate these situations. But the long and short of it is, if there's danger, your brain will pick it up. More than likely there's no danger, even when you think there is, and you have to bring in your cognition and say, ooh, settle down a piece. But yes, if something is dangerous to you and you've experienced it in the past, your brain will let you know. Okay. So Jessica says, I'm cleaning up from a messy time in life. In paying attention to resolving those messy dits, how do I avoid unintentionally creating new ones? Oh, this is so fabulous. Jessica, I love your questions. The way you do it is by continuously acknowledging that you may be wrong. And that doesn't mean that you dump on yourself or that you criticize yourself. This is something that all my coaches learn to do like their first day of training. It's to say, am I getting this right? Or does it resonate for everybody? Could could I get more opinions on this? Could I get more perspective on this? One of the biggest things that Elizabeth says we should do to change the fate of our world to change like global warming and all the other things is simply to have more dialogue as we go forward with any project. And she says that's sort of a, that's a more female way to do it. I would say it's just a more, let's use the Chinese terms, yin and yang. You know, yin is the, is the softer element, yang is the harder one, and our culture is very yang. So she says, bring some yin in and just ask people as you go forward. Is this bothering you? Does this seem right to you? Let me just check. And it's actually a way to bring people in collaboratively. I've learned so much about this in running my own little business. It's like six people that meet and then a bunch of wonderful instructors. And I used to think that I had to do everything by myself. And what that meant was that I basically was running roughshod over everyone. Cause I didn't realize that taking a step and then checking with other people is how you build a team, It's how you build, Uh, curriculum is how you build a set of instructors. I wasn't checking in enough. Same thing with um, diversity training. I wasn't checking in with people from diverse backgrounds. I wasn't stopping to talk to the people who'd had a different experience from me and saying, how does this come across to you? And when I started doing that more, I had to eat a lot of humble pie because I'd made a lot of mistakes, but humble pie can be delicious. And that's what you, can learn if you are willing to go into the yin part of your personality. And that's another shift of attention. Not where am I getting it right, reinforce my decisions, but talk to me, tell me your perspective. I may not be right for you, and together we can build something that is even better than the sum of its parts. Okay, so Kira says, Martha, consider this my letter to you. (laughs) You're so sweet. You brought immeasurable comfort, joy, and transformation in my life. Truly, I am grateful to you. Oh my goodness. That's so sweet of you, Kira. And here's the thing. When I, when I hear that kind of thing from people, which I do sometimes, and it makes me feel shy. But what I remember is that every time I sat down to write or to f- make something or to coach, my attention went to the people who'd be hearing me. So when I did my writing course, I always say, instead of showing up at the page to get attention, a really good writer shows up to serve and shows up to give attention to the reader. So I cannot tell you how many nights I've been awake all night. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of nights. And in my mind was you. I didn't know who you were, but I, and I didn't couldn't clearly see your face, but I knew that you were listening to me, like a potential reader. If you're reading something or if you're watching this broadcast, you're listening to me. What does that do for me? It heals me. As I show up to give attention to you and you listen to me, it heals me. And this is the weird sort of feedback. It's not weird, it's beautiful, but it's the feedback loop of gratitude. As soon as you start feeling the presence of someone else who's paying attention to you and your attention is on them, It forms a bond of love. And then that love creates more gratitude, which overflows as love and is received as gratitude. And it just starts to build and build and build. And this is why I do think, I mean, we're seeing the epidemic, the pandemic of COVID's um, doing its exponential growth thing again, very, very scary. The case load is going up. The hospitalizations are going up. And it's like vertical, it's a vertical rise. But remember when you look at those curves that go straight up, that acts of kindness and healing can also go viral. That if we get enough people into a sort of um, energy, sorry, it's California word, but a sort of um, frequency of peace, love, gratitude, hope, and so on, that spreads from person to person, from community to community. I was listening to Eckhart Tolle talking about, somebody was asking him about how crazy everything seems to be these days. And he said um, that when you see the badness rising in your own view, you can also be guaranteed that the good is rising at the same time more silently and that it's also going viral. So I hope, 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 hope he was right. And um, if we do the gratitude letters, we're definitely going to push that curve. So get contagious with gratitude. Okay, Donna says, what if we have a life in which what we pay most attention to is the, mo- the emotional distress of others? Well, there's two ways you can do that. One is to get wrapped up in their distress and um, do half empathy. There are four components to empathy, social, cognitive, neurological part of empathy. There are four areas in the brain. One is called affecturing. It it makes us feel emotionally the same thing another person is feeling. Um, Another is self other differentiation, where we know what's happening to them, not us. One is emotion regulation, where we're able to raise or lower our own intensity of emotion in response to another person. And the fourth one is um, cognitive empathy, where we can make sense of what another person's situation is. Now, when we only go to the empathic feeling, it's like, imagine if I got hit by a car, I'm lying there, I've got a broken leg, you come running over, you lie down beside me where I'm screaming on the pavement, and you start screaming too, because, the the pain of seeing my pain is too great for you. So that's only affect sharing. It doesn't bring in the rest of empathy. So it doesn't make us into effective actors. So when you are, here's another um, coaching tip. I always quote to my coach trainees, a line from Hafiz, the 13th century Persian poet, who said as part of one of his poems, troubled, then stay with me for I am not. So, When you're looking at someone in pain, if you let yourself indulge yourself in going to the same place of incapacity where their pain has put them, you're not actually using your whole brain and you're not using gratitude. The attention is going to the suffering and not to the fact that as Byron Katie says, when you suffer, I don't, it's not my turn. (laughs) So you see the suffering, but you have to shift your attention to the fact that you're not the one undergoing the suffering at that moment, that you can regulate your emotions and that you can figure things out and get help when another person is suffering. Now, if you do that, then you'll be putting your attention on the teacher who talked down the school shooter instead of on William Sherman, who just burned <coughs> burned Atlanta, sorry. So yeah, as you look at other people, shift your attention to what you're grateful for instead of what's awful and you will shape a world in which the things that make you grateful are everywhere and the things that hurt you barely show up. They're just not in your attention anymore. Okay, so Judith says, I find that I can only practice gratitude when I'm not in upheaval, caught in anger. At the same time, gratitude snuffs out anger. How to go from stress, anger, and fear to gratitude. Okay. I got, I got a good hint for you from someone I greatly admire, Anita Moore Johnny, who was, um, she's the woman who was terrified of getting cancer, then got lymphoma, fought it for years, and finally basically died of it. She was, her body weighed less than 90 pounds and most of it was tumors when she finally went into a coma. And the doctors put her on life support so that her brother could get there to say goodbye before she died. And she had a near-death experience She met her father there who died earlier and a friend. And they said, you have to go back and um, live a different life. And she was like, okay, in what body? And they said, that one. And she's like, seriously? Well, long story short, she woke up in this body that was basically dead of cancer. And three days later, the cancer was reduced, reduced by half. Nine days later, she was cancer free. Okay, so what she said to me in my face, is, and I should write her a letter to thank her about this and read it to her on Thanksgiving weekend. Um, She said, no matter how angry you are, if you can get quiet, you can find a way to acceptance. And that's not acceptance of, for example, the whole world situation, but acceptance that the universe is as it is in this moment because you can't really change it. So if you can get to that level of acceptance where you're surrendering to the fact that things are as they are, you start to relax. That's acceptance. If you spend a long time, and enough time in acceptance, just breathing in and getting away from your, shifting attention from what's not working toward what is, then you can reach peace. Like, all right, this room's not so bad right now. I'm going to let it go for a minute. Once you reach peace, you can find gratitude for something. So here again, we go to the active, turning attention to gratitude. And she says, from gratitude, you can get to joy. So even if you're not feeling good, if you follow that, like go to acceptance, to peace, to gratitude, and then you can find something to be joyful about, your whole life shifts. And if all of us do this stuff and we shift our whole life, you know, there are a few hundred of us here right now, but each of us this week, as we go into Thanksgiving, is going to be connecting with all a bunch of loved ones, even if we don't travel. I'm sure we'll be making phone calls and Zoom calls. So let it be a true week of gratitude, you guys. Let us write down the gratitude for even the smallest things. Let us go to the effort to find that first grade teacher or whoever it was and, tr- and track them down and read it to them. I mean, just reading Kira's little note of gratitude to me just makes my heart explode. Make someone's heart explode in that wonderful way this week, let it happen to a bunch of people. Make it the focus of the next week and the one after that. The expression of gratitude shapes the world instead of allowing the horrors of the world to shape us. And that's what we have to do if we're not going to undergo some kind of awful Cassandra-like fate. So thank you guys, have a wonderful Thanksgiving if you're American, sorry if you're not, I've been Americanizing this whole broadcast by talking about Thanksgiving, but hey, we can make it a week of Thanksgiving no matter where we are in the world, and it will make us all happier even if it isn't a national holiday. So thank you, thank you, thank you for putting up with the technical snafus at the beginning and for joining me here. I want to end this by saying I am so intensely grateful for you guys, you have no idea. You just make my week, my whole week, filled with goodness. And my attention is on you. So thank you, thank you, thank you, and I'll see you next week. It's a bewildering moment to be alive. That's why Martha Beck, me, and Rowan Mangan, me, created Bewildered, the wildly successful podcast for people trying to figure it out. Most of us are trying to fit society's expectations about how we should live, which is stressful and confusing. On Bewildered, we look at topics like perfectionism, what it means to have enough, anxiety, and creativity to see where the culture may be pushing us all away from the lives that truly fulfill us. If you're bewildered, if you want to think and you love to laugh, come join us.